Amen. Thank you very much. If you would turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to get back into the book of Luke and begin our trek toward Easter since we're done with Christmas. But it's also the first Sunday of the year, as Dan mentioned, and it's always a great opportunity to think about just basic things, uh, things we need to be reminded of. At 9 o'clock, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13 and the, the importance of love and how ultimately Paul could argue that without love, um, we're, we're not being and doing anything that God really calls us to do. Or to be. It's everything about loving him and loving others in the way that he loves. And yet, in order to do that, trusting God is crucial. And so, what I'd like for us to think about this morning is as we look at Luke 19, is to think about Luke 19 and what it says about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in terms of how we are to trust him. Because obviously, the Lord Jesus came. For one, well, several reasons, obviously, but one huge reason was so that when we looked at him and we looked at his life, we would see the God that we cannot see, that the God who is unseen would be made visible so that we could trust him in the ways that we need to trust him. And so there's a particular reason why Jesus enters Jerusalem the way he does, and there are reasons why he does what he does when he enters into Jerusalem on which is what we know to be Palm Sunday. It's going to be a really long week uh, in getting to Easter. But that's the way it played out in the book of Luke. And so we actually start here in that regard. And so basically, well, I want you to start with this question in your mind. What do I need to trust Jesus for this year? What do I need to trust Jesus for this year? And how does what is revealed about Jesus in this passage encourage me to trust him for that this year? Those are the two questions that I hope the Lord will answer for you as we go through this this morning. So let me begin in verse 28 of Luke 19. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany, Near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and, uh, and found it just as he had told them, As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, 
the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be called shall be, excuse me, a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. This is the word of God. When I think about this year, And as I think about last Sunday when we talked about the kinds of anxieties and fears and things that we all struggle with when we think about the unknown and the challenges that may lie ahead of us, it's encouraging to me to realize that over and over again in the Bible, God tells us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And yet, Those can be empty words unless there's something to back it up, unless there are good reasons not to be afraid. If I just tell you don't be afraid, but you don't know why you shouldn't be afraid, then it probably won't impact you very much at all. Jesus, in this passage, reveals the Father's heart to us in such a way that it's meant to give us a peace in every situation. And so the thing that I want us to see is that it's all wrapped around his sovereignty over everything. The reason why I say that is, this is obviously the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. They're laying out coats on the ground. They're laying palm branches on the ground. If you read other accounts, Jesus is riding in on a donkey and they're, they're worshiping him. They're praising him. They're thanking him. They're quoting from Psalm 118. As it says in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus has just healed Lazarus and raised him from the dead. And the people are beginning to believe that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so they're giving him the red carpet treatment. They're giving him the royal treatment. They're exalting him as the king that is supposed to be coming that God has promised for so long. Jesus doesn't deny that. He just challenges their perception of what kind of king he's going to be. The interesting thing about this picture is you've got Jesus writing into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. Now, most kings and most great men would not have been riding on a donkey, especially if they wanted to portray themselves as great and powerful. 
They'd be riding on something like a white horse. If you go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, there's a picture of Jesus coming back with the armies of heaven, and he's not riding a donkey. He's riding a white horse, a picture of power, picture of glory, picture of strength. So the question is, why doesn't he do that here? Why doesn't he do the same thing here? Well, it's because there's, that's not what he wanted to communicate. He, he wasn't prepared to say, I am the king that you're looking for. What he wanted to say was, this is the king that you need. The king you're looking for is a king who will come and who will defeat your enemies. I'm a king who's going to come and defeat you. Now, what do I mean by that? What I want us to see as we think about this passage is, Jesus is the kind of king, at least at this point in history, he's the kind of king who leads out of a heart to serve. He leads out of a heart to serve. If you, if you went back to the very earliest times in the Bible when it talks about kings, uh, for instance, if you go back to Numbers, not Numbers, actually 1 Samuel 8, and the people there want a king because Samuel's sons are not like he is. They're taking bribes, they're corrupt, and so the people begin to say, you know, Samuel, you're getting old, your sons aren't like you are, so we want a king just like everybody else. And it grieves Samuel. And the Bible actually says, God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as king over them. But I want you, Samuel, to tell them the procedure of the king that they're asking for. And if you were to read through 1 Samuel 8, you'll find where Samuel lays out all the kinds of things that the king was going to do, that he was going to take their sons and use them in his uh, various adventures. He's going to take the daughters and put them to work. He's going to take their female slaves and their male slaves and take their fields and take their vineyards and take their tithe. And over and over again it says take and take and take and take and take to the point where Samuel says, you're going to cry out because of your king, because of all of his taking from you. Jesus says, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not the kind of king that's going to take and take and take. I'm the kind of king that's going to give. Now, how so? The cult, it doesn't say this in the book of Luke, but if you read the other accounts, the cult was a donkey cult. And in one version it says it was a, a beast of burden. So what do donkeys do in that day and time? They carry burdens. They carry things. They carry people, whether it be Mary or someone else, or they carry loads. They perform service. And so Jesus doesn't come... At this point, riding on a white horse, declaring his authority and declaring his rule and reign, he comes riding on a donkey, declaring his servanthood. And that's why over and over in his ministry, he told the disciples, I'm not going to be the kind of leader you want me to be. 
And I don't want you to be the kind of leader that other men say you should be. I came to serve, and I want you to come to serve as well. And so the picture that he's painting is a picture of service, that I'm here to serve. Dan likes to wear a shirt that says, I'm here to serve, I think, or something like that. Jesus could have wore that same T-shirt riding into Jerusalem, here to serve. Why is that significant? Because if I have a leader who says, here to be served on his shirt, another leader that says, here to serve on his shirt, who am I going to trust more? We have plenty of people in Washington that are the I am here to be served kind of leaders. And every decision they make is calculated. They're asking the question, will this preserve my power? Will this enhance my power? Will this grant me favor in the eyes of people? Will this get me what I want? We have plenty of leaders and plenty of people that are making decisions day in and day out that have everything to do with them. Now, it may relate to other people because they need it to relate to other people in order for it to enhance their agenda. But Jesus is God and he needs nothing from us. We don't serve him. We don't, we don't do anything for him. He has no reason to somehow try to manipulate things to get things from us. He is totally free to serve because he doesn't need to be served. Therefore, he can truly say, I am really here to serve you because you can't serve me. You can't supply anything for me. You can't do anything for me, but I can do everything for you. And I have a heart to do so. And yet, the most important thing Jesus came to do was not to liberate Israel from the Romans, at least not at that point in time. He came to liberate them from themselves. In that same passage in Matthew 20 where Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I came to ultimately die to rescue people from what? The rule of the Romans? No, the rule of sin. I came to serve you by delivering you from sin. I think Charlie and Daniel and I were talking earlier, and they both made reference to this, this idea. Um, I've mentioned before the story where there was this uh, British newspaper that simply asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in and said, I am. What difference would it make this year in 2020 if you began the year thinking about every relationship you have? And if you answered the question, what's wrong with this relationship? And you answered, I am. Does that mean you're the only thing wrong with that relationship? No. But what does it mean? 
change in this relationship needs to start with me. What's wrong with my marriage? I am. What's wrong with my family? I am. What's wrong with my church? I am. What's wrong with my neighborhood? I am. What does that mean? That means that I need to be more concerned about the enemy of my own flesh and my own sin and my own soul more than I am about everybody else and their failure and their sin and their need to grow. How radically, how radically things would be different in our lives if we were more concerned about our own sin than everyone else's sin. If, if the Israelites had been more concerned about their sin against God than the Romans' sin against God, what kind of change might there have been? Might they have actually been open to a Savior? If they really saw themselves as being the place where change needs to start. Did they need to be rescued from the Romans? Were they being oppressed? Yes, sure, certainly. It's not to say that any of us should think that every situation is simply our fault. It's simply to say the same kind of thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 7 when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That my hope for joy and peace and all that I need for this year starts with me taking seriously my response to people around me, whether it be the Romans or whether it be um, the Iranians or anybody else. Whatever we're having to respond to, the question is, do I look at Jesus as here to serve me by freeing me from my own bitterness, my own resentment, my own anger, my own fear, my own anxiety? And do I see that that is the starting place for me to truly have a year that brings greater glory to God? He is a king that leads out of a heart to serve, but he's... His greatest concern is to rescue you and I from our sin, our sinful response to other people. Is he concerned about their sin? Yes. But when he talks to me, he's not talking about their sin. He's talking about my sin. And so we can be thankful that we have a king who says, your greatest need is what I'm going to pursue to seek to free you from. Jesus had no sin. No sin. And he had the joy that he wanted to give to us. If we want his joy, then he's going to have to deal with the sin in our lives as well. So Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey because he's coming in to serve And he's coming in to serve in such a way that he's going to deal with our sin this year. Which means he may not rescue us from the Romans. He may not rescue us from suffering and oppression of various kinds. But he is out to give us joy. 
by dealing with the things that really rob us of that joy. The second thing is, he's a king who judges out of a heart of love, which means I can trust him to serve me, number one, and I can trust him to do what's right, number two. In verse 41, it says, he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and wept over it. So on the one hand, you've got Jesus riding in on a donkey to say, I'm here to serve. Then he approaches the city and he cries. Everybody's throwing a party and Jesus is crying. Why? Why is Jesus crying in the midst of the party? Because he knows that they're not really interested in being delivered from sin. They just want to be delivered from the Romans. And as a result, most of them are going to reject him. And many of them are ultimately, in about a week's time or so, going to yell, crucify him. And he weeps because he looks even beyond his own crucifixion to 70 AD when the Romans are going to come in and are going to level Jerusalem and massacre a million Jews. And he looks ahead and he weeps. There are two things that that picture paint for us that are very, very important. One is God will always do what's right. Why was Jerusalem destroyed in 70 A.D.? Because they murdered the Son of God. The visitation he refers to means his visitation, his coming. They murdered the Son of God incarnate. And God destroyed the city. It was the right thing to do. If someone were to walk into your house and murder someone you love, you would think death would be the right thing for someone to do, to exercise some kind of justice. That's what 70 AD was. That was God's justice on Jerusalem. But the encouraging thing is that not only is the king who reigns over everything a king who says, I'm here to serve you. He's also a king who says, I'm willing to forgive you. That's where the tears come from. Don't you know? Don't you hear him say, if you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace. Don't, don't you know if you just ask me, I could give you living water? Don't you know that if you just humbled yourself and Ask for mercy like the, the um, tax collector that I would send you home justified? Don't, don't you know? God is always going to do what's right. He will punish every sin and yet I can trust him for mercy. If I will just go to him for mercy, he promises mercy. I can trust him for that this year. Can trust him to show mercy. That's a huge, huge thing. And he calls us 
to be the same kind of people that are committed to doing what's right, but are also ready to show mercy and kindness. There's a story about an old man who went to live with his um, son and daughter-in-law, and he was getting so shaky that he, whenever he ate, he would make all kinds of noise and he couldn't keep his food on his plate. And the daughter-in-law was very, very impatient with him. And so they ended up sticking him in a corner because they didn't want him at the table eating with them because he was so unruly in his actions. And eventually, the very bowl that he was eating out of, he dropped and he broke it. And so... In their irritation with him, they built him a little trough and just left him in the corner of the kitchen and let him eat out of a trough. Well, one day, they were noticing that their little son was playing on the floor with some wood and building something. And the father said, son, what are you building? He looked up at him and said with a smile, I'm building a trough for you and mom one day when you get older so that you'll have something to eat out of too. And all of a sudden, the mom and the dad took the old man and put him back at the table and started to treat him differently. Why was that? Because they realized that they were setting an example of how to treat those that are difficult And they realized that one day that they were going to be difficult. And the question is, are you committed to doing what's right even when it's difficult? Are you committed to doing what is merciful in those kinds of situations? And our king is committed to doing what's right and he's committed to doing what is merciful. It says in Romans chapter 12, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your revenge, your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. We have a king who says, no matter what situation you find yourselves in, look to me and I will enable you to show mercy and I will enable you to serve and to love, even in the most difficult of circumstances. We have a king who leads out of a heart to serve who judges out of a heart of love, and a king who conquers out of a heart to save. If you look at verse 45 and 46, it's the very, very brief account of Jesus cleansing the temple. It says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. And he says, my house shall be be a house of prayer. In other versions, it says a house of prayer for all the nations. So what's going on there? You can picture Jesus as a king going in to conquer, so to speak, driving out the money changers. 
evidently what was happening was there were different courts. There were the courts of the Gentiles, the courts of the women, and the courts of the men. And you could only go into certain courts depending on whether or not you were Jewish and whether or not you were male. And they set up these markets in the the court of the Gentiles. And as a result, they were making all kinds of money off of people, uh, charging exorbitant prices. And at the same time, they were keeping the Gentiles from having any place to pray and to seek God. And so Jesus' anger was twofold, that they were ripping people off, and secondly, they were keeping Gentiles from pursuing a relationship with God, with the true and living God. And so Jesus comes in and he drives people out in order to bring people in. That his heart isn't just to drive people out, it isn't just to do what he's doing to enrich himself, so to speak, but to do what he does in order to enrich others. There are plenty of kings, plenty of military leaders who would go into battle very selfishly. Uh, In the Old Testament, you've got the story of Saul, who at one point is going into battle, and he says, no one can eat anything during the battle until my enemies are avenged. And as a result, people by the end of the day, end of the battle, are starving to death. And the comment is made that the victory would have been greater if you just had let the people eat from their spoil and would have benefited from the victory. Saul was a very selfish and foolish king, a selfish and foolish leader who was very much about himself. Jesus is just the opposite, that he conquers in order not to enrich himself, but to enrich everyone else. He drives people out so that he can bring people in. You know, there's um, there's a perspective on life that Jesus calls us to in which he says, um, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, that's an application of what I'm talking about here because it's, it's very easy for us to go into the new year wondering, you know, what it's going to look like, wondering... You know, what our relationships are going to look like, um, what we're going to receive in various ways. The question is, what if none of that transpires? What if all of our great expectations of what we're going to receive from people and maybe through our job or through our relationships, what if it doesn't play out that way? What if, if, what if they aren't everything we want them to be? What if we're not as enriched this year as we want to be? How will we handle that? Well, the Lord wants us to trust him and to not worry about it. To give ourselves to enriching other people, even if we feel like we're getting the short end of the stick. To give and give and give. There's a story of a, um, a homeless man who would go by this Christian um, guy's house every so often and 
one day the Christian guy thought, you know what, I'm going to collect a bunch of shoes and a bunch of clothes and I'm going to give it to this homeless guy because uh, he only has one, he has two shoes, but neither of them match and his clothes are all tattered and torn. And and yet he was a very happy guy. He would play a harmonica and he would sing old hymns and and all those kinds of things. And so this, this young Christian man collected all these things for him and left it on his porch and the, the man came by and picked them up and took them off. And the next day, the, the homeless man came back by and uh, the two of them were talking. And, and the young man said, so you got, you got the stuff I left for you. And the guy said, yeah, I really did. It was so great. Thank you so much. And what's even better, I found somebody who really needed it. And I gave it all away. See, that man, in a very simple way, was not thinking about how he could be enriched. He was thinking about how he could be the means to enriching someone else. Who around me needs something? How can I be a vessel through which other people are enriched this year? Rather than counting, you know, keeping score of what people are doing for me, what am I doing for others? Because that is the king we serve. We serve a king who became poor that we might become rich. We serve a king who isn't about enriching himself, but is about opening the door to others to find the riches of God through him. Lastly, we have a king who teaches out of a heart to liberate. The last thing that's mentioned there, just a very, very brief reference to his teaching daily in the temple. And Jesus comments on what he's doing um, in John when it mentions the fact that um, he says, if you abide in my word, you'll be truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. There are plenty of people in power that pass laws and make decrees and do what they do in order to bind people, in order to control people. The Bible says Jesus tells us the truth so that we can truly be set free and enjoy what he has prepared for us. You know, one of the most confusing books in the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to read a book that will challenge you, uh, like Martin Luther said, this this book is tough, but I'm going to beat on it until I figure out what's going on here. It's a really, really hard book to put get your mind around. And the reason why is it's a reflection of how difficult life is to get your mind around. And there are so many things in life that have happened already and that will happen this year that we will find hard to wrap our minds around and to figure out how it all plays together. And yet at the very end of the book, it says this, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The question is, regardless of what happens this year, can I trust God and simply seek to do what he tells me to do and leave the rest with him? 
Will that be my mode of living out this year? I'm going to look at what the Bible tells me to do. I'm going to pray for grace to apply that in my relationships. And I'm going to leave the rest with God. That I don't know how it all is going to work together. I don't know why God has ordained everything that he's ordained. I don't. I can't figure it all out. I can't wrap my mind around it, but I don't have to. God can wrap his mind around it. And he's told me this is how I'm to live my life. And so that's why it says in 1 Peter 4, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Doing what is right. So my encouragement this first Sunday of 2020 is we have good reasons to trust God. He's here to serve us. He always does what's right and he's ready to show mercy. He is conquering in order that people might be saved. He's doing what he's doing to open the doors of heaven to people. And ultimately, he says, I'm telling you what I'm telling you, that you might just trust me and do what I've told you to do and leave the rest with me. Leave the rest with me. And as Dan said earlier, one day we will see things as they really are And we will rejoice with God forever. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We we just pray that you would help us just to get a little taste of what it means to submit to your kingship, submit to your rule, to trust you with our lives this year, to trust that you are truly at work to serve us, that you are ready to forgive, that you always do what's right, that you are at work to open the doors for others to see you and to know you, and that we need to listen to your word. We need to embrace what your word has to say. We need to put it into practice in our lives, and we're to trust you for the joy that you've promised us And we're to leave at your feet all the things we don't understand. Help us to do that this year. Help us to trust you as the great king that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.